Ready? Okay. Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus. Increment 55. I can't drive 55. Tut esten ton diabolen. It's one thing to be a Christian in name because one has believed in Jesus Christ. It's quite another thing to go on to a completion and a perfection by which we have the ability to redeem the time and have a positive effect in history. With that in mind, we'll open in prayer. And Father, we thank you that you are light, and in your light we see light. May we see the light that shines from the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, revealing the knowledge of your glory now. In other words, may we see Jesus. But may we progress upon the path of the just toward the light of a perfect day in which people will see Jesus in us. We ask it in his name. Amen. It's one thing to be a Christian in name because one has believed in Jesus Christ. Christians in name and by profession have no redemptive effect on history. Sometimes they even have a harmful effect, a deleterious effect on history. That's why Jesus exhorted his disciples to become wise like serpents and harmless like doves in Matthew 10:16. And that's why Paul exhorts us to do all things without griping and arguing so that we may be blameless and harmless, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and distorted generation, among whom you appear as stars in the universe, holding forth the word of life. Philippians 2.14 to 16a. This is not a call to be counter-cultural but rather to be counter this aeonic against the grain of this age itself, which is called an evil age in Galatians 1.4. Many call Christians to a counter-cultural move, but Christianity isn't necessarily counter the culture as it is counter the whole age, the whole present evil age age. Hebrews also is not a call to be counter-cultural, but counter this aeonic, as I would say it, counter this dash A-I-O-N-I-C. That's a theme that we'll be considering as we carry on from here in Hebrews. Again, it's one thing to be a Christian in name and profession. It's another thing to be perfected or completed in Christ with Christ fully formed in us. In fact, this is really what a Christian is, one in whom others see Jesus. The perfected Christian has a redemptive effect on history. And when I say perfected, I don't mean ethically or morally perfect. 
I'm talking about someone who is fully developed in love, in whom Jesus Christ has been fully formed to the point where the life of Jesus is manifested in the mortal body. You can find these in Galatians 4.19, this concept is found, as well as in 2 Corinthians 4.11. has to do with conformity into his image. In fact, the perfected Christian, not just the Christian in name or by profession, the perfected Christian has a redemptive effect in history and upon history itself. He or she is able to redeem the time when the days are evil, as Ephesians 5.16 puts it. Hebrews is not a call to believe and be saved. It's an exhortation to go on to perfection, as Hebrews 6.1 says, centrally. Now, when the PT who preached Hebrews says perfection, again, he's not talking about moral or ethical perfection. No, that PT and this PT, yours truly, are speaking regarding a demonstrable completion, a completion that can be demonstrated in time in our mortal bodies in which we live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Therefore, I use the word a demonstrable completion in which the life of Jesus is actually and observably manifested in our mortal bodies. That's before glorification. That's within our contingent humanity, these days of our flesh. This completion is reached by perseverance in faith and by a constant exposure to the alternation of the exposition and exhortation of the scriptures by which God, the Spirit, speaks to us today. This completion is not reached without our Heavenly Father's loving discipline and without suffering from time to time. Neither does perfection of the this, of this spiritual life or a completion, a demonstrable completion of spirituality in the Christian sense, come about without a deepened knowledge of the Word of God which involves a more complex and advanced reflection on the significance of Jesus and his death and exaltation. That's what Hebrews is, a reflection on the deeper significance of Jesus Christ than we have known before. Today we'll become exposed to a bit of exposition to that end. You see, right now we're in a time of separation. It is a divinely ordained separation which will last until we are allowed to move around as God's people in God's house without the restrictions set by the state or by science. 
Until then, God has ordained a period of absence. And it's in that period of absence, as Paul said, that we all the more importantly must be obedient and attentive to the word of God. And until we get that purpose for this time, God isn't going to let anything else happen. Until we get a hold of that purpose, which is to lay hold of the true livingness that is in Christ Jesus, the true eternal life, we won't get the point. And so God has us in a period or a time, an interval of being scattered abroad. But that always tends toward riches, does it not? When we return again to be together, we will truly say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now, in our message today, tut estenton diabolon, I've debated whether or not to pursue the comparison or the contrast that I'm about to bring and decided to bring it because of its interpretive value to Hebrews. Interpretation is one of nine theological functional specialties that we employ for an accurate exposition of the scriptures. We used, those, we used eight of those at least in Revelation, nine of them in Romans, the ninth being horizons. It's a comparison and contrast between the mythological legend of Hercules, the Greek word for Hercules being Heracles, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I decided after weeks of debate whether or not to bring it. I decided to because of the interpretive value that it has to our study of Hebrews 2.14 and 15. So I say that this comparison contrast has interpretive value because the PT, the pastor theologian, speaks of rendering ineffective the one who had the power of death, making powerless the one who had power of death. The word for power in Hebrews 2.14 is kratos, K-R-A-T-O-S. It means dominion sovereignty or authority. You'll have these things spelled out in written form and I urge one more time that you will read the notes that belong to these messages. For example, the last message I did, Increment 54, is loaded with additional information and beefed up with more documentation which we call lower blade data which Pastor Mark Whitmer recently reminded me of the meaning of that term and the necessity of that term. So the written form isn't just a direct transcription. Oftentimes, if not all the time, it's a true beefing up of what I've said in the oral part or the video part of the messages. And so I say this comparison has interpretive value. And the word for power, kratos, means dominion, sovereignty, or authority, as well as power. The aorist tense, A-O-R-I-S-T, should probably read this way. The one who had power over death in Hebrews 2.14 because it stresses that he no longer has that power. 
The James Murdoch translation, which is called a literal translation from the Syriac Peshito in 1851, is quite helpful in this regard because it reads this way. For because the children participated in flesh and blood, I would say blood and flesh, he also in like manner took part of the same, that is Jesus, that by his death he might bring to naught him who held the dominion of death, notice that, him who held the dominion of death, namely Satan. The one who is said to have held the dominion of death is not the God of the underworld, whether his name is death, Thanatos in the Greek, or Hades, Hades, but in fact, he is called the devil, and that's the title of our message, tut estin ton diabolon. And the devil is a slanderer. The word diabolos means slanderer. A liar is another way of saying it. A conveyor of information that's intended to impugn someone. In John 8.44. Held the dominion of death. Once held it. Is a phrase that accurately depicts the nature of the slanderer's power. Regarding death. He held dominion over it in a way that's comparable to the power held by the mythic god Hades over the netherworld or the underworld. Hades is also a word that describes the underworld. It's interesting that Paul uses that word under the earth as well as above the earth in the heavens and on the earth to describe every knee bowing and every tongue acknowledging that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. The underworld. Hades is also a word, therefore, that describes the kingdom or the abode of the shades of the dead. In the American Heritage College Dictionary is helpful in this regard to describe the a boat of the shades of the dead. It sounds faintly Homeric, and I did read a couple of Homer's classics, at least one. The Diabolos is analogous to the mythical god Hades and is referred to in Hebrews 2.14 as having the power or dominion, kratos, and that connotes the holding of authority or dominion over a realm, a particular domain. The devil is depicted here metaphorically as being the former ruler of the realm called death or Thanatos. Just as the mythological god Hades ruled over the realm of the dead. It's a poetic comparison then that we have here in Hebrews. A poetic comparison and Poetic comparisons like this and a misunderstanding or a crass literalization of metaphor in the scriptures often leads to the mistaken idea, for example, that the devil rules in a place called hell, and that's not true. The God of this age has his domain being this age, this world. Kratos also means the power to control. The devil had the power not to control death itself, but to enslave people by the fear of death. Kratos has the sense then of sovereignty or authority. 
It means dominion in such doxological passages where God is given glory as in 1 Timothy 6.16, 1 Peter 4.11, 1 Peter 5.11, Jude 1.25, Revelation 1.6, and Revelation 5.13. In the scriptures, a sovereign or a king is one with his kingdom or the realm over which he has authority or sovereignty. The one who once held power over death because of his slander has been proven to be a slanderer and therefore has been stripped of his power. Death, Thanatos in the Greek, and Hades, Hades, Hades in the Greek, are a couple in Revelation. In fact, in one sense, they are one and the same entity, kind of like Siamese twins. In Revelation 1.18, the Son of Man announces that he holds the keys to these rooms or realms, death and Hades. In Revelation 20, in verse 14, toward the other end of Revelation, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire where they were utterly demolished and annihilated. Death and Hades are seen as one personified entity, and they together are the anyone, quote, quote, anyone, close quote, whose name is not written in the book of life in Revelation 20 and verse 15. Death and Hades are also conceptually joined and personified in 1 Corinthians 15. In 15.26, Paul teaches us that, quote, death, Thanatos, is the last enemy to be destroyed. He uses the same verb that the PT uses for the destruction of the slanderer, ton diabolon, also known as the devil. Probably not that good of a word for him in Hebrews 2.14. The word is katageo, for destroyed. It means to cause to be powerless. The same word is used by Paul in Romans 6.6 regarding the body of sin, which we call the Adamic ontology, and its enslavement of the individual Christian. It is destroyed or rendered effective when the Christian knows and reckons that he's been crucified with Christ and then walks in the power of the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. In 1 Corinthians 15.55, death is called out and taunted for the loss of its sting. In other words, God trash-talks death as he trash-talks Hades or Sheol. In the Byzantine text, otherwise known as the majority text of the Greek, Hades is also called out and taunted or trash-talked against because of its defeat. In the Nestle-Allen text, which I usually use, this verse has a double taunt of death. In other words, thanatos is used twice. Twice, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your penalty? Whereas the double taunt refers to, Paul may have done that deliberately to refer to the victory not only over death, but over the second death, using death twice. But the double taunt may also refer to the victory wrought by Jesus Christ. Of course it refers to that. 
It may also be pointing to the defeat of the first and again that which is called Hodutaros Hothanatos or Hothanatos Hodutaros, the second death, Revelation 2.11, 20, verse 6, 20, verse 14, 21.8. 1 Corinthians 15.55 is in fact a quotation from Hosea 13.14 of the prophets. The Septuagint has both death and Hades, not death twice, and both are personified. Hades is the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, which is the underworld, once again, or the abode or the dwelling of the dead. And that's a mythological term. Sheol is depicted both as a realm and a person in Hosea 13, 14. In that verse, Yahweh proclaims, I will rescue Israel from the hand of Hades and redeem them from the penalty of death. And the wages of sin is death. Then Yahweh trash talks death. The living God has the right to do that. He trash talks death in Hades saying, Hey, death, where's your penalty? Hey, Hades, where's your sting? And this is what Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15, 55. I think, therefore, it's more accurate to present 1 Corinthians 15, 55 as a quotation of the Septuagint in which both death and Hades, understood as one entity, are trash-talked by God as being utterly defeated. Hosea 13, 14 has this additional word, in fact, spoken by Yahweh that Paul does not quote. He says, comfort is hidden from my eyes. That's what Yahweh says. The God of all comfort gives no comfort to his archenemy. For the archenemy of the living God is death and Hades. He gives no comfort to death or Hades. The God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob is not God of the dead, Jesus said, but of the living because all are living to him, says Jesus in Luke 20, verses 37 and 38. So it is fitting that death would be the enemy of the living God as the Lord, Yahweh, happens to be called the living God in Hebrews. In fact, in Hebrews 3.12, 9.14, 10.31, and 12.22. And it says that his word is living and effective in Hebrews 4.12. And his way is new and living in Hebrews 10.20. It was also fitting in the eyes of the living God that the founder of salvation would experience death for everyone. And he did in order to do away with death for all. Let me say it again. It was fitting in the eyes of the living God that the founder of salvation would experience death for everyone to do away with death for all. By his suffering and death, Jesus destroyed death and the one who used death to his advantage up until then. The Hebrews writer employs mythical language to show this or mythical comparisons to show this. 
What the PT does in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 is particularly ingenious. Not particularly genius, particularly ingenious. Instead of coupling Hades with death, he connects death with the slanderer or the devil. The destruction of death means the rendering of the slanderer to be totally ineffective because death is metaphorically depicted as the realm or the domain over which he rules. Just as Hades goes down with death in the battle against the living God, so the devil goes down with death because death was the only weapon in his arsenal. With death defeated by the champion of salvation, the devil is rendered powerless. His slander of God and his enslavement of human beings to the fear of death is finished. It's finished. To tell us that, it's done. This liberation is made personal in each individual's life when they receive the insight that Jesus vanquished death and emptied hell, as it were. And I'm only using a metaphor there. Emptied hell. By emptied hell, I don't mean that there ever was a hell of everlasting torment. But I mean that the lie that there is such a place, a lie that's fomented by the slanderer, has been exposed. <clears throat> In the stripping of the slanderer of his armament, guess what? We see Jesus. We see Jesus as the archegon, as the founder, but also as the champion, both meanings pertain, of salvation. We see Jesus. And the devil is rendered powerless. On top of this, there's a comparison of Hebrews 2.14 with Hebrews 7.16, much deeper into the epistle. Hebrews 7.16 has to do with the priesthood and the intercessory function of Jesus, a saving function. In Hebrews 7.16, the scripture says that Jesus, quote, became a priest based on the power of an indestructible life. Contrast indestructible life with destruction of death and the one who had power of death. An indestructible life is how Jesus became high priest and not by virtue of physical descent. In stark contrast to the destruction of the one who had the power of death is the indestructible life via resurrection from the dead, by virtue of which Jesus became a priest through the age and by which he always lives to intercede with God in our behalf, Hebrews 7.25. He was crucified in abject weakness. He lives by the absolute limitless power of God. <clears throat> in that imperishable life, he intercedes for us. Jesus is absolutely able to save those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. And he saves them absolutely. That a confession 
that there is continually the act of our salvation is vital to understand. Let me say that again. That there is a continuity in the action of our salvation is extremely vital to understand. It's one thing to have a confession which tells the world, I am a Christian. We are Christians. It's quite another thing to go on to completion, which is, by the way, a very far less popular notion today, but one which Hebrews majors in. In Hebrews, faith becomes perseverance, a nonstop participation in the faith, fidelity, and faithfulness of Jesus. I call that the triple F, the faith, fidelity, and faithfulness of Jesus in which we participate. We live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. Hebrews 2.14 then agrees with Revelation and with Paul in its disclosure of the victory over death that was won by Jesus through his ordeal on the cross. An unspeakable ordeal which God followed by, quote, bringing up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the everlasting covenant. There's the blood groove, Hebrews 13, 20. And by his almost inexpressible exaltation to the right side of the Father's majesty in the heavens. Hebrews 1, 3, Hebrews 8, 1, Hebrews 12, 2, and 3, etc. In fact, maybe we better call Paul now. Remember his number, 555-5555. And see what he says about all this. Paul says this, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord who gives us the victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Then in classic pastoral fashion, Paul exhorts the Corinthian saints and us by saying, therefore my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the Lord's work knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, We can be steadfast and immovable as an advancing phalanx in the army of the Lord because we have been the recipients of the victory over death that was won by Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now who's fearful? Our adversaries. Philippians 1.28. It's probable that the recipients of this homily were familiar not only with the Greek text of the Hebrew scriptures, with which they were very familiar, but with the Greek mythology that was popular at the time, just like comic books and graphic novels are popular in our time, and particularly with the legend of the 12 labors of Hercules, or Heracles, the Greek, According to the American Heritage College Dictionary, 5th edition, Lucian Aeneas Seneca, Lucian Aeneas Seneca, S-E-N-E-C-A, usually known just by the word Seneca or the name Seneca, born in around 4 B.C., the same date probably of the birth of Jesus, and he died in A.D. 65, was a Roman Stoic philosopher, according to the American Heritage college dictionary he was a writer and the tutor of Nero of all people his works include treatises on rhetoric and governance and numerous plays 
Now, among his plays was Hercules Furens. That's the word Hercules and then the word Furens, F-U-R-E-N-S, regarding Hercules as mortis victor, or victor over death. Kevin McCruden, and I can't re recommend his book highly enough, in his book titled Solidary, Solidarity Perfected, Beneficent Christology in the Epistle to the Hebrews. What a title. He quotes a small fragment of that play, Herculens Furens, lines, I believe it's lines 861 and following, in which he describes the realm of death and Hercules' victory over it and his liberation of maids and men from its fear. Here's how he describes this underworld. There chaos reigns, repulsive glooms, the hateful dark of night, the empty veil of clouds, the weary inactivity of that still empty universe. The joyful day of Thebes is here, now at the altar's sacrifice, and let the choicest victims fall. Ye maids and men in mingled bands begin the stately choral dance, and let the cattle of the fields put off their yokes and be glad today, for by the hand of Hercules has peace from east to west been won. Born now across the shoals of Tartarus, with hell subdued, he comes again. No room is left for fear, for what beyond the realm of death remains? Please notice the legend of Hercules descending into hell to empty it, to defeat it, and to come back again, removing or liberating maids and men from the fear of death. The writer to the Hebrews may be very familiar with this, as are his readers, but he says the reality of this victory over death is Christ. It is Christ, Christus Mortis, victor. Christus Victor Mortis, the real victor over death. Later on, McCruden rightly observes, or at least partially rightly observes, quote, this historic, or heroic rather, conquering element is also present in Hebrews. That's why I said I debated about whether to keep this, and I think keeping it is helpful. This heroic conquering element is also present in Hebrews, of course, and emerges especially clearly in the portrait of Christ as the divine son who conquers on behalf of the faithful, both Satan and the fear of death. However, I would argue, this is McCruden still, he says, however, I would argue that Christ's beneficence toward humanity is of a different order than that described in the literary depictions of Heracles. Christ's beneficence is marked not so much by heroic self-assertiveness as by personal commitment and self-sacrifice. Now, both of those quotes being given, I would say, this is me speaking, I would say, instead of saying, as McCruden did, the divine son who conquers on behalf of the faithful, both Satan and the fear of death, I would say the divine son conquered both the slander and the fear of death on behalf of all of humanity, not just the faithful. And he did so by his faithfulness, his faith, his Fidelity. <clears throat> On the other hand, I would certainly agree with Mr. McCruden that Christ's beneficence toward humanity 
is of a different order than that described in the literary depictions of Heracles. The translation, him who held the dominion over death, as a description of Satan or the slanderer, allows us to compare the devil to the mythological god Hades, who ruled over the realm of the shades of the dead. Therefore, there's this comparison and contrast. Jesus, the liberator, the real liberator of humanity, from the fear of death, fulfills and exceeds a comparison with Heracles because Jesus is the real, not the mythical, vanquisher of death and destroyer of Hades, or now the slanderer. In the comparison contrast, death as an underworld realm ruled by Hades in mythology is portrayed as a realm over which the devil rules. So according to legend, Heracles is the hero who subdues hell, Hades, and empties the dominion of death, thus liberating all of humanity from fear. But in reality and not mythology, Jesus is the hero who has vanquished death and stripped the slanderer of his power. This is like the brief parable that Jesus told, or maybe it's just an analogy, in Luke 11, 21 to 22, of the stronger man overcoming the strong man and stripping him of the weaponry in which he trusted. The weaponry of the slanderer is the fear of death stripped away by the man, the stronger man, Christ Jesus, who conquered death. With death conquered, the fear of death is stripped from the slanderer and he's rendered hors de combat, incapable of fighting. This also agrees with Jesus' words in John 12, 31 to 32, that, quote, now the prince of this world is deposed, thrown out, adding, if I am lifted up, I will drag all to myself, implying that all those who were once enslaved by the prince of this world and the god of this evil age now belong to the conqueror, Jesus Christ. Romans 1.6, for example. Christus mortis victor. <clears throat> all those once captive to do the will of the prince of this world now belong to God. They have been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20 As for the comparison between Jesus and Heracles, both of whom are depicted as journeying to the netherworld, and we're going to see this a little bit in 1 Peter 3.19 and 20 and 1 Peter 4.6 in our next message, which will hang together with this one. Both Jesus and Heracles depicted as journeying to the netherworld it should be noted that there is more dissimilarity than similarity, as is the case with similarity and dissimilarity of Jesus with Adam in Romans 5:12 to 21, and in 1 Corinthians 15:21 to 22, and 45 to 49. In other words, there are more points of contrast even than there are of similarity between Jesus and Heracles, Jesus and Adam. Both Heracles and Jesus are portrayed as champions who have conquered unseen realms and invisible enemies to liberate humanity. Heracles, known but to us more commonly as Hercules, according to Greek mythology, Hercules in Roman mythology, was half human and half divine. Jesus, in reality, is fully human and fully divine. 
And no matter how Heracles is portrayed, he is still the model of this age, this aeon, exemplifying the swagger of arrogant self-assertion. Jesus, the real victor over death and the real emptier of hell, is meek and humble-hearted. When he put off, when we put off the old man, as we're instructed to do in Ephesians 4.22, we're also told to put off the lie in Ephesians 4.25. When we're told we put off the old man in Colossians 3.10, we stop lying in 3.9. We're putting off the man who's fashioned by the arrogant self-assertiveness of the present age, the present evil age. We are putting off the lie. We aren't like Nero trying to imitate Hercules. We are like Paul imitating Jesus. We are putting off who we really are not. When we put on the new man, as Ephesians 4.24 says and Colossians 3.10, we're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh to indulge in its self-assertive and self-important swagger in Romans 14, 13, 14, which is the provoker of all kinds of divisiveness and factions and even civil wars. Jesus is the self-revelation of God to humankind. And believers, by the way, should be ready for anything. And I mean ready for anything. Pandemic? Yeah. How about civil war? How about attack by a belligerent nation called war? Real war. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying let's go on to perfection. Let's go on to where the path of the just shines to a more and more perfect day. Let's go on to the place where we actually affect history and do so redemptively. Jesus is the self-revelation of God to humankind and as such, the revelation of self-sacrificing, unrestricted love. God's self-revelation is his selfless, selfless self-dedication to humankind. McCruden is certainly right to say, quote, Christ's beneficence is marked not so much by heroic self-assertiveness as by personal commitment and self-sacrifice. This self-sacrifice, in fact, becomes powerfully thematic in Hebrews, especially in the middle chapters in Hebrews 5 through 10, chapters 5 through 10, where we learn that Jesus was perfected as the sin offering that purified the whole of humanity from sin, a subject not broached, sin that is, not broached by Greek mythology or emphasized by Gnostic mysticism. Hamartiology is virtually missing from those two fields of study. The self-sacrifice of the Son of God, the offering of his body, through which we were sanctified once and for all in Hebrews 10.10, is also the basis for the apostolic exhortation that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. This is the ground of our spiritual life 
and the act of our reasonable spiritual service. Be reasonable is the third of five transcendent precepts, Romans 12.1. It is reasonable because it's done in a mimesis of Jesus. And mimesis, by that I do not mean mere imitation. I mean imitation by participation in Jesus. And it's followed by walking in love, quote, as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God, Ephesians 5.2. There is your self-sacrifice and your beneficence and your love demonstrated by Jesus Christ as well as his humility. It's interesting that Hebrews 2.14-15 sits squarely in a section of Hebrews having to do with angelology, a branch of theology. It is the slanderer whom we're dealing with here. And the question is, is the slanderer, Hodiabalon, an angel? Because we're still in the sphere of angel angelology, starting with 1-4 all the way through 2-16. The superiority of Jesus over angels is congenial with the defeat of the evidently angelic slanderer whom John in Revelation calls the accuser of the brothers and sisters, the accuser of the brethren. These are the very sons and daughters whom God is calling to glory. They're the ones whom he slanders and accuses. In John 12, 31, the prince of this world, also known as the devil, is thrown out. Ekbalo. And in Revelation 12, he's thrown out and down. These are violent terms in Revelation 12, 10 and 12, 13. The throwing out and the throwing down of the slander corresponds with the lifting up of the Savior, the champion of salvation, Jesus our Lord, who was first brought outside the gate of apostate Jerusalem, Hebrews 13, 12. In Revelation 12, 7, we hear of John's vision of the dragon and his angels. There it is, another mythological genre term. The dragon and his angels. The devil is not literally a dragon, but he's Draco. He's called the dragon and his angels. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus speaks more literally of the devil and his angels, which is the same word we're using in Hebrews 2.14. To diabolo kai tois angelois autu. The devil and his angels for whom purifying fire from another world is reserved. So we're still speaking of angelology when we talk about the destruction of the slanderer, the one who held power over death. But when we talk about destruction, we're talking about Jesus Christ who destroyed him. But how did he destroy him? He destroyed him through the just and mysterious law of the cross by which not only evils of the human race, but evidently the evils of the angelic spheres are transformed into a supreme good. We're almost prepared now to venture on to Hebrews 2.16. Almost. 
There we're going to be told that Jesus took hold, took hold, grabbed hold, not of angels, but of the seed of Abraham. The seed of Abraham happens to be a very inclusive term, incidentally. Soon, if the Lord permits, I like the way the Hebrew writer says that, if the Lord, let us go on to perfection, if the Lord permits. So I have to pray, Lord, would you permit us to go on to perfection, please, as to tell us thy phalanx, so that we can live up to our name. Finished. To tell us that, complete it. Soon, if the Lord permits, we'll go and learn what that means, that he took hold of the seed of Abraham. But first, we have something else to consider. First, let's consider the two verses that have held our most recent attention one more time in Hebrews 2. Consequently, since the aforementioned children have a share in blood and flesh, he also became a partaker of the same so that through experiencing death, he would render or to combat the one who held dominion over death, that being the slanderer, tut esten ton diabolon, and liberate all those who, had all their li- who all their lives were held in slavery to the fear of death. Now, here it is. In our next message, if God permits... We will be treated to an insight, which I'm still nursing in my study, an insight that I surprised the hell out of me. In the next message, we'll be treated to an insight into the precise identity of, quote, all those who all their lives were held in slavery to the fear of death. Who are they? Who are, quote, all those who all their lives were held in slavery to the fear of death. I'm going to make a prediction. You may be surprised to find out who they are. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We're doubly grateful today for your double victory over sin and death. We are doubly grateful, Father, for the double anointing that came from Elijah to Elisha and from Christ to the body of Christ and to the spokesman that he has ordained for our time. We ask now, Father, that the truths that are conveyed, you, Father of lights, enlighten us so that we may truly shine as stars against the backdrop of the starry night, against the backdrop of the night in such a time as this so that we can manifest Jesus Christ to a crooked and distorted and warped generation, confused and lost. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.